listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Go ahead, and if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 12, or an app, or a iPad, or whatever you have brought this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, or we'll have it on the screen. And uh, we, if you're a guest this morning, you're, you're first time, second time, we have been working our way kind of slowly through the gospel of Matthew. And so we find ourselves in chapter 12, uh, right in the middle of chapter 12. And, and here's the thing. Sometimes the Bible is challenging to understand. It just is. I know that's maybe strange from hearing, it, hearing that from a pastor, that sometimes I read it. Sometimes Jesus makes statements and I'm like, what, am I, what do I do with that? I don't understand that. All right, and I got the Greek and Hebrew and the commentaries and all that stuff, and I still have to wrestle and, and to figure out what is it that the Lord Jesus is saying. Uh, and that's okay. If you read something sometimes, you're like, I don't understand that. It's, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. So remember, we're talking about a, a book that is inspired by God, but it's written to a completely different context, and it's a, uh, different languages that have been translated. It's, it's written into a certain uh, situation that's going on, and there's all sorts of literary genres, and some, some things are difficult sometimes to understand. On top of that, the Bible was not written to you. It's for you, but it's not written to you, okay? So the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen, is not written to CBC, Savannah. It was written to the nation of Israel to show them that Jesus was their promised Messiah. That doesn't mean it's not for us, it's not true, but there's their original audience. And so these things all make it challenging sometimes. Uh, and, and we're going to come to a passage today that is one of the more tricky chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, because Jesus is going to make some statements that if you just read them, you're like, I don't understand what he just said. And that's okay. And so what my, my desire today, my heart is, I want to take these what are often called the, the hard or difficult sayings of Jesus, and I'm going to try my best see if I can earn my paycheck, to put the cookies on the lower shelf. This is where my PE teacher training may come in handy for some of y'all, all all right? Maybe not. But we're gonna try to take these these things that the Lord Jesus has said that may be challenging to understand and try to get them down to our level so we can not just know it, but so that we can do it. Because he's gonna make some some kind of challenging statements. He's gonna seem to imply that there is an unforgivable sin. And some of you are like, ooh, I I I I hope I haven't done that one. He's going to say, you know, Mary may be my mama, but she's not my family, right? He's going to say, you know, when there's somebody, a demon gets cast out of somebody and he leaves, he's going to go and he's going to get his buddies. They're going to come back and they're going to, they're going to make a house of it. And there's all these kind of challenging statements. And so I want to try to take the big idea of what each one of these is, these challenging, difficult statements of Jesus, and try to get it to our level so we understand what he is saying so that we can do it. So we're going to look at a lot of text. We're going to cover the rest of chapter 12 today, and we're going to high level it. So if you're looking for all the little details and all the little things, we probably may not get to every detail, but I do want you to know what the big picture is so that you understand what Jesus is saying, and then so that we hopefully can apply some of the principles there, all right? And the context, where we've been, Jesus is in the middle of conflict with the Pharisees. They are mad as hatters. They want to destroy him. Why? Because he was nice to someone on a Saturday. I mean, when it comes down to it. He was nice on a Saturday. He healed someone on a Saturday. He didn't keep their little silly rules, and so they want to destroy him. And it's in that context we pick up. Let me just read the first of our our five paragraphs this morning, and we'll kind of work each one uh, as we come to it. 
Verse 22, then a demon-possessed man or oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided itself against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And it starts, so the text starts off with a demon oppressed man. And we have looked at, at the reality of Satan is a real person. Demons are real. It's not just some spooky thing we talk about, kind of this, uh, this illustration of evil. No, there is a Satan. There are demons. They are supernaturally empowered. They are strong. They try to thwart the people of God and the plan of God and from people knowing God. And, and we've seen demons that are strong enough when they come upon someone that they can break chains. We've seen demons that, that affect the motor skills of people. So we've seen someone who is blind and mute uh, here, we see someone who was deaf before. In other places in the gospel, there's a woman who's oppressed by a demon and she's, she's hunched over. She can't stand up, right? And so here's one that is oppressing someone and there's blindness and muteness because of it. And it, we don't get all the details. It just says Jesus healed them. He healed them and they spoke. He healed them and they saw and people were rightly amazed, and they asked the question, can this be the son of David? That's a, that's a messianic question. Is this the Messiah? And it's a great question because that is the point. Jesus' signs and miracles are supposed to point people to the fact that he is the Messiah, right? That's, it's a great question. Could this be the son of David? But of course, there's always the Debbie Downers. There's always someone that's gotta be negative, the Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, eh, it's only by Beelzebub. The prince of demons, this man casts out demons. I'm not gonna go into the entomology of the word Beelzebub. Basically, this is their derogatory term, means Lord of the flies or Lord of dung for Satan. So they can't deny the reality of the miracle. There's no doubt. This guy could, could not see, he can see. This guy could not speak, he can speak. So they can't deny the miracle. So what do they do? They attribute it to Satan. They basically, in essence, say, this guy... Is a, is a witch. He's a Harry Potter. He's a sorcerer. He does things by the power of Satan. That's the only reason he can cast out demons, right? Because he's in league with the devil. That's what they're saying. And Jesus responds with crystal clear logic. Follow his argument, how he says, he said, that is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in essence. And he's going to say, show how illogical the argument is. Four points. He says, knowing their thoughts, he says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. 
How then will his kingdom stand? What is he saying? He's saying, why in the world would Satan attack himself? That's silly. It just weakens himself. A civil war weakens a, a nation. So why would Satan do that? He wouldn't. It's, it's illogical. That's point one. Point two. And if I cast out demons by Satan, by Beelzebub, whom do your sons cast them out? They apparently had Pharisees that went out and did exorcisms. And his logic is this. If I'm doing this by Satan and your guys are doing it by God and we get the same results, how can you say that's inconsistent? How can you say the same results but different power? It doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous, right? And then he goes on. This is kind of the crux of his argument. But if I do it by the spirit of God, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom has come. And it's a, a word in the Greek. It's in the tense. It's, it's, it's here. It's done. It's a completed event. Have you considered that if I do this by the spirit of God, which by the way, the Old Testament prophesies, Isaiah three times says the Messiah will have the spirit of the Lord on. If, if the spirit of God is doing this, what does that mean? That means the kingdom's here and y'all are on the wrong team, right? And then one more argument, it continues. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. He says, if you're gonna go rob somebody in their home, what well, has to be the case? You gotta be stronger. You gotta put them in an arm bar, a figure four, run the diamond cutter, DP on them. You gotta be able to take them down. You gotta be stronger. And then you can plunder. I have proved that I am stronger than Satan. I have bound him. I have cast him out. So, in light of that, in light of this might be the spirit of God, in light of it's an illogical argument, in light of it's inconsistent with what you guys do, in light of the fact that I am stronger, if you are not for me, you're against me. There's only two options, right? Whoever scatters or gathers. That's, there's only two options, right? And then here's his conclusion. And this is where Christians kind of struggle with where he goes here. And maybe you've, you've been here in this place. Therefore, in light of what I just told you, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, even this age and the age to come. So you can talk all sorts of garbage about me. You can lie about me. You can criticize me. You can recruit against me and it can be forgiven. It will be forgiven. And this is the thief on the cross, Right? Two thieves, both of them mocking Jesus. One at some point repents and believes. See, that can be forgiven. But he says, not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It will not be forgiven. And this is where some Christians really struggle because like, have I done this? I mean, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Right? Have I, I mean, I, I used to make fun of Christians. I used to take the Lord's name in vain. I, list, I, I have doubts. Is doubt? Blaspheming the spirit? I had an immoral lifestyle that was against what the Bible said. Is that, um, what, did I do this? Right? And, and what I want to encourage you with this morning, if you're asking the question, you have not. Okay, first of all, so if you're like, did I commit the unpardonable sin? Uh, besides being a Braves fan, there's nothing unpardonable, right? <laughs> In this church, anyway. No, you haven't if you're asking that question. And, and let me, let me un explain why. Right? Let me explain why. What the Pharisees are doing, and most commentaries will go here. So if you read the commentaries, they're doing something that you can't replicate today. Right? Why? Because they are seeing God 
Literally, they're seeing the second person of the Trinity, God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And they are saying the good and beautiful and true and powerful things that he is doing are actually wicked. This is actually Satan. They are attributing evil to that which is perfect and good. You can't do that because you're not there. Right? You can't say, oh, that's, that's you know, Jesus was doing this of, of the power of Satan. You can't, because you, you can't replicate this sin in that way, right? Because you can't attribute the powerful work of God that you are seeing to the devil. But here's what you can do, right? That you can't blaspheme the spirit in that way. But here is the one thing you can do that is unpardonable. You can slander Jesus. Maybe some of you were an atheist in your past or you're in a higher academia and you just to slam Christians and make fun of Christians and think Christians were morons and all these things. You can be forgiven that. You can have lived an immoral lifestyle. You can have pursued this, that, and the other and all these things. Those can be forgiven. But here's the one thing that you cannot do, right? The one unpardonable sin that there is, it's this. It's the rejection of Jesus Christ. If you live your life and you reject the love of God for you in Christ, the good news of the gospel, that you are a sinner separated by God, that Jesus took your place on a cross and rose again, if you reject that and you die in that condition, there is no pardon for your sin. That's the only unforgivable sin, the rejection of Jesus. Anything else? Is pardonable. But if you die rejecting Christ, there is no hope, right? There is no hope. And here's the encouragement for us because most of us are here because we haven't done that. This is why a Christian cannot commit the unpardonable sin because you've put your faith in Christ. But here's what I would say. This is the kind of savior we have. He will say, you can slander me. You can, you can mock me. You can do all these things and you can be forgiven. And I, and I want us to be reminded of this because I think some Christians, even though they wouldn't say it, they really struggle with their past because you have a past. You did X, Y, and Z. You're on your third marriage. You had an abortion. You have a bankruptcy. You lived in immorality. You've had this addiction. You were an alcoholic. You had a, fill in the blank. And you cannot get over your past. And let me tell you, that's not from God. That is from the devil. Because what the devil does, it's very simple. He's been doing it from the beginning. He tempts you to sin. He draws you in, feeding on your own heart, which is already desperately wicked. And then once you sin, he immediately turns and he starts accusing you of your sin. He is the accuser of the brethren. So he tempts you to sin. And as soon as you fall, he, I cannot believe you would do that again. You said you would never do that again. I can't believe you're going to that church after the week you had. I can't believe that you call yourself a Christian and you haven't opened your Bible in two months. I can't believe, I can't believe. And we believe it. And we believe it. And see, he can't take your salvation away. He's been defeated at the cross. He's been disarmed, is what Colossians says. But what he can do is he can make you ineffective and miserable and grumpy all the time. And that's the only thing he's got on you now. And some of you, you're letting him win that battle, right? You're letting him win. If you are in Christ, your sin, all of it, past, present, and future has been paid for at the cross, right? 
I, I mean, which one of your sins was not future when Jesus died for it? All of them, right? This is why Peter says this, Christ suffered once, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Remember, the, this is why Jesus is better than the old covenant. What do they have to do? Every week, every Sabbath, lamb, dove, goat, lamb, sacrifice, after sacrifice, after sacrifice, after sacrifice, and it was never done until Jesus died once. This is why the writer to Hebrews says he's a better high priest. He says every high priest in the old covenant stands daily in service offering the same sacrifices over and over and over. That can't take away sin. And remember we worked through Exodus back in the spring, or no, that was last spring, it all melds together, okay. But we went through Exodus and we looked at the tabernacle and remember there was one piece of furniture that was not in the tabernacle, remember what it was? Chairs, there's no couches, there's no break room or green room in the tabernacle. Why? Because they always were working, sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. There was always work to do. And Jesus comes, he's, he's offered as a sacrifice, and then what does he do? He sits down. He sits down. Why? Because the work is done. He says, it is finished. Tetelestai. Paid in full. And some of you need to be reminded of that this morning because you're in the midst of an addiction or a struggle and you're feeling unworthy and you're feeling unloved and you need to be reminded Christ died for you and that is enough. And you can rest in the forgiveness of a God who loves you where you are at. Today. You're like, but Bill, you don't know. Today. You can rest in his forgiveness and move on. And yes, we're gonna sin. And when you sin, you confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and you go on. But some of you need to stop believing the lie of Satan, right? Because you're believing it. I'm not worthy, I'm not this. Yes, that's the whole point. We're not worthy, that's why we're here. Stop, stop wallowing in your unworthiness and delight in your savior who loves you and gave himself for you, all right? So that's the only unpardonable sin, that's the point. That's cookies on the lower shelf. You haven't committed it. Unless you reject Christ, right? That's the first thing. All right, let's continue. Gotta move. Gotta move, gotta move. Either make the tree good and its fruit or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay, so Jesus, again, he's talking to a bunch of guys who just call them Satan. So he's talking about what they say. And he starts off, and the metaphor is pretty clear, right? Good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. But I love that Jesus says, how do you think that you can speak good? Because you are a bunch of slimy snakes, right? Slimy snakes, brood of vipers. How do you think what you say is good when your heart is wicked, right? And the, and the image is clear. The heart is the tree. The fruit is what comes out of the tree. He said, you can't escape that. We got a lemon tree in the front yard and it would normally produce lemons, but the deer eat them. So we don't get no lemons, but we have a lemon tree, all right? But it doesn't produce lemon trees because I'm like, hey, this year I think I want lemons. Let's choose that. Last year I wanted acorns. This year I want lemons. No, it produces a, a lemon because it, the nature of it is lemons. He says, if you want 
good fruit, you have to have good heart. And Pharisees, you do not have a good heart. How do we know? Because you speak out which, that which fills your heart. Your heart reveals. The mouth reveals what's in here, right? And then this, this kind of scary verse at the end. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word. Think about that. You can delete your tweets, but they're there, right? Every careless word. Why? Because your, your words are gonna ju- either justify or you condemn you because it shows what's in your heart. Pharisees, you call me Satan, it'll show on the last day what's really in your heart. And here's the application for us, right? Very simple. And we, we come to this a lot, is your words matter, bottom line. Your words matter because they reveal what's in our heart. Let's be honest. Our mouths get us into trouble more than anything else, don't they? I mean, the scripture says so much about mouth. Our tongues are a, a, a fire, right? Full of deadly poison is what James says. Proverbs 6, very famous passage. Six, six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, right? When, when, when the Bible says these are things God hates, you should probably kind of listen. Three out of the seven are sins of the mouth. Three of them. Lying, right? Evil speaking, right? Half-truths, hateful remarks, gossip. What we say matters because it reveals what's in our heart. And so if you struggle with gossip, that's, that's, that's just a symptom of what's in the heart. Maybe in the heart, there's jealousy. And so you're gossiping about this person to make them look bad because you're jealous that they look better than you. Right? Maybe you're always critical of this person and my boss and this and this person. And maybe it's because you're insecure. Right? And so you want to bring them down to make yourself feel better. You're always mean to, you know, your, to your coworkers or your employees or whoever it is. And maybe that's because there's just bitterness in there. Because this person did this to you and so I'm gonna get back at them. Lying, right? Ultimately, lying is a pride and selfish issue because I want what I want and so I'm gonna do what I want and so I'm gonna lie about it to get it. It's about me, 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 me. It's a selfish issue. Always giving orders, always commanding. Maybe there's a, a uh, you know, insecure issue. the point is this, we always deal with the behavior, Jesus gets to the heart, right? This is why social media is so dangerous, y'all. I'm so thankful that I don't post, right? But I see y'all's posts, I just don't post. Because here's the thing, back 30 years ago when people actually talked to people in real life, there was, we had this thing called a filter, right? You may think something, but you rarely would say it. Now, the thinking of it is sin too, right? But at least we didn't say what we thought. Now it's like, you're just on your computer or on your phone in the room, and you think, this is what I think about my parents. Boom, post. This is what I think about that person and what they're wearing. Post. This is what I think about the president. This is what I think about my boss. This is what I think about whatever. And we just post it, post it, post it, post it, because we think, oh, no one will really see it. I mean, or, or it won't come back to haunt me right? And, and it's, it's a heart issue. We got to guard our heart. The mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And what we put into our heart is what we get out of our heart. And so this is why the psalmist and the Proverbs guard your heart. And we're so focused on the behavior that comes out. They lied, they're this, they're that. And no, we should be getting to the heart of the matter, getting to the root. If I go to the doctor and my blood pressure is 190 over 160. 
and my cholesterol is through the roof and they're like, Bill, your BMI is 40 and, and all these things. He's not gonna say, okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to just go buy a really nice suit. Get some nice shoes, get a haircut, shave, put some cologne on. That'll make all things better. No, it's not the external That's not the problem. I can't just dress that up. It's what I'm putting in myself. It's what's inside. And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying. And that's what we need to deal. We got to deal with the heart. You got to deal with what we're putting in. What are we consuming? Because that's what we're going to be revealing. So the media that we fill our heads with, the scrolling, like, 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 tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, send, 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 the, oh, look at, their, look at their home on Pinterest. Oh, I need that, I need that, I need that. And we, you know, it seems so innocent. We're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And we look at our screen time and it's 50 hours a day. And there's only 24 hours in a day. And somehow we figured that out. And we're just filling our hearts with what we don't have and what we want. And what's it bring? Jealousy. Or the, the entertainment that we fill our minds with. The music, the books. The news, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on in the news. And all these things, if we're not cautious, it will come out of our mouths. We guard our hearts and we renew our minds with truth. Romans 12, one and two, do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will know what is good and right and perfect and acceptable. That's what pleases God, Right? And so we gotta deal with the heart. So don't deal with just the symptoms, deal with the heart. You find yourself saying this, doing this, revealing this, then you've gotta deal with the heart. And, and here's the thing, because I know all of us, including myself, are thinking, yeah, that person really needs to hear that. Now, this is an individual thing. You will give an account for every, for every word. That's what Jesus said. You will. So you're like, yeah, but you don't know how hard my parents are, and you don't know what my boss is like, and you don't know what this teacher's like. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. You're responsible for you. God God will deal with them. You, your heart, your mouth, your words. That's what he's saying. So it may be kind of, you know, difficult illustration, difficult metaphor to grasp, but here's the point. Your words matter. They reveal it's in the heart. So guard your heart and the words will follow. Fill your mind with truth, renew your mind with truth, and, and truth will come out, good truth, love, kindness, gentleness, fruit of the spirit, right? Let's go on, continue. All right, I'm good, I'm running good on time. Okay, verse 38. Some of the Pharisees said to him, answering him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, which is crazy, because they've seen a thousand signs from him. They just saw a sign from him. We need another miracle, Jesus, show us a miracle. But he answers them. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Why do you want another sign? You're not gonna make you believe? I've raised someone from the dead. You don't believe. I cast out a demon. You don't believe. A mute, blind, don't believe. A paralytic, don't believe. Another sign's gonna convince you? Oh, I gotta get to 10 miracles and then you believe? He says, you're not gonna get a sign. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is, by the way, an interesting fact. Jesus believed in a literal Jonah, just If you're thinking, oh, that's just a story of the Old Testament, not according to Jesus, he says he's a prophet. So it's not just some, you know, allegory. It really happened three days in the belly of the fish, right? So he says, here's the sign. Just as Jonah was, it was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And this this is an allusion to what? The resurrection. 
But here's where it's a little challenging. And some of you have asked me this question, right? And it's a great question. Oh, wait, so Jesus is gonna be in the belly, like, like Jonah was three days, three nights, Jesus is gonna be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Okay, so Friday night, Jesus was crucified on a Friday. That's one night, Friday night. He was in the grave on Saturday, Saturday night, but he came out on Sunday. Did he come out a day early? I mean, it's only two nights, right? Should he come out on Monday? Should we be at church on Monday? Monday is, 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 is Resurrection Monday? That doesn't sound as good as Resurrection Sunday, right? So what's the deal there? Is this a contradiction in scripture? Here's what you have to understand, and here's where it's challenging. Okay, this is a Hebrew idiom. You know what an idiom is, right? It's a figure of speech. It's not taken literal. It's like it's raining cats and dogs, right? It's not literally raining cats and dogs, but it's raining hard. Or she missed the boat, which means she, she missed an opportunity. In the Hebrew, to say uh, three days and three nights, it's, it, it means literally uh, any part of three days. And if you're like, well, is it ever used that way? It absolutely is. First Samuel is used that way. Esther chapter four, it's used that way. It's just a, an idiom meaning any part of three days. And so in that sense, Jesus was in the grave Friday, in the grave Saturday, in the grave Sunday, and he comes out on Sunday. So, so there's not a contradiction, but that's, that's kind of one of those figures of speech that we miss because we're two centuries removed from, from Hebrew, uh, uh, from, from Greek and Hebrew, but that's what he's talking about. But here's, here's his point, right? Here's where he goes. So, so Jesus is gonna be in the belly of the earth for three days. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? They repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. All the Ninevites had was a bald prophet. Most people think Jonah was bald. Most people think he was bleached white after being in the whale for three days. So they have this like literally white bald dude running around and he's preaching an eight word sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all he says. Walks around the city and what happens? They repent and they believe and they're saved. That's all they had. He says, something greater than Jonah is here. They repented in an eight-word sermon. You have miracles. You're gonna have the resurrection and you don't believe. And so these guys in the judgment are gonna say, what were you thinking? Same with the Queen of Sheba, right? Queen of the South, that's the Queen of Sheba who came to Solomon. Uh, she, she came from her place and she asked questions and she ends up believing in the God of Israel. She's amazed. She's gonna rise up in the judgment because she had just limited information from Solomon and she believed. They are gonna stand in con- condemnation of you because you have so much truth and you do not respond. And here's, here's where we land. Here, here's the application for us. It's just respond to what you know. Right? When God gives you revelation, we call it light theologically. When God brings you light, respond to the light you know. You don't have to know everything. In fact, you're not gonna know everything. But Christians always want, I wanna know the deeper things. I wanna get, okay, great, there's nothing wrong. But are you doing the things you know? Because why should God give you more revelation if you're not gonna respond to the simple? And there's a ton of simple things. For us, you could never get deep in the deep stuff and have tons to obey and listen to. For instance, love God. Is that hard to understand? That's not challenging to understand, is it? Love your spouse, love your kids, love your neighbor, love your enemy. There's five loves. Do you need anything else? That's enough. Well, you need to tell me about reform theology. No, I don't. Love your neighbor, love your spouse, love your kids. Tell the truth. Work hard for God's glory. Don't be lazy, right? Be generous, be kind. Obey the speed limit, right? Some of you really need to hear that one. It's the law. I, it's, it, these, are, these are not deeper truths. But see, you're not gonna be held accountable for that which you do not know, but you will be held accountable for that which you do. You will. 
So just respond to the light that you've been given. And so for all of us, we can walk out of the room and say, I, I, I don't need anything new. I just need to do what I know. I just need to do the things I know. And as you do those things, it'd be amazing how God will then reveal new things to you. Some of you are seeking God's will. I, I need to know what God's will for my life is and what am I gonna do in 10 years and 15 years and where am I gonna be? You don't need to worry about 15 years from now. What you need to do is Monday morning, do an awesome job at your work, right? Be kind to the guy in the cubicle next to you, right? That's what you need to do. And as you do that, you'll be amazed if God wants to get you to Tucson, he'll get you to Tucson. He can do that, right? You don't need to worry about where, just worry about the what. Respond to that which you know, right? Next one. This is a very interesting story. Okay, so what Jesus says this, and he's kind of going back to the demon. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil in itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation, this evil generation. So the idea is this, Jesus casts out a demon. And in that moment, it's a very dangerous time for that individual because the house is clean and it's empty and it's swept up and everything's back to normal, right? We saw the guy who used to be breaking chains and and he was in his right mind and he was calm. That's a very dangerous time for him. He can go one of two ways, right? But he can't stay neutral and this is the point. He can either follow Christ or he can do nothing And if he does nothing, what happens is that demon who has been cast out may go and get a bunch of his frat buddies and they're gonna come back and find the house swept and empty and they're gonna move in and it's gonna be a worse situation than at first. And so here's the idea for us. We can't be neutral. There is no neutral. And Jesus already said this earlier. You're either for me or against me. You either gather or you're scattered. And where I think this applies for us as followers of Christ is this. When God moves in your life, and he delivers you from something. Maybe it was a bad relationship. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe it was some sin that you were caught up in. And what we do often in that moment is we're so thankful. Just like when people get demons cast out. Thank you, Lord, for delivering me. God takes away this consequence. He takes away this thing that, that has been on us. And it's in that moment we're so thankful. But that is a critical moment for us. Because what often happens is we get away from the consequences a little bit and the the shame and the guilt and we move on and we forget. And we kind of take our foot off the gas and we just, we're cruising, we're just in neutral. We're just kind of cruising down the hill. And see, if we don't move in that moment towards Christ, we're setting ourselves up for a further, a worse situation than we started, an addiction that is deeper, a worse relationship, a worse burden. So what he's saying is, in that moment, there's no neutrality. You, you pursue Christ hard. You go after following him and being obedient to him and renewing your mind and staying close to him. Because if you're just going to be neutral, what's going to end up happening is that gambling addiction, that alcoholism, that drugs, that internet pornography, whatever it is, food addiction, whatever, it's going to come back and it's going to be more challenging than, the first, than it was at first. You can't be neutral. You can't be neutral. You, you can't let your guard off. 
can't think moralism or being nice or just being, you know, I'm going to go to church. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being filled with the spirit. If the house, nature abhors a vacuum, if you take all the grass out of your yard in two weeks, you're going to have what? Weeds because nature abhors a vacuum. You can't just stay empty. You got to be filled with the spirit of God. You got to walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, right? You cannot be neutral, right? That's the big idea here. I know that's kind of an interesting, you know, demon story and all, but that, that, I think that's the point of what we're, we're, he's talking about. And then there's one more. This is kind of a humorous situation. He says, uh, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And if you grew up in, in the Roman, uh, Roman Catholic church, this is a, a very strange verse for you because you've been taught that, that of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is not in the Bible, Okay. Just, I'm just telling you, it's not in the Bible. Uh, Jesus had brothers, uh, at least four of them. They're named in Mark chapter six, right? You can go look at them. His brother's names were James, right? He becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. Joseph, which is just a, a, a shortened ver, uh, word for Joseph. Judas, who wrote a New Testament book called Jude. And Simeon, or Simon, same word as Peter. It's one of the 12 tribes, right? And, it had, and he had at least two sisters, it's plural in Mark. He had sisters, so he had at least two, maybe more. So at minimum, Jesus was one of seven. At minimum, right? So understand that Mary and Joseph, after Jesus was born, had normal relationship, and there was other siblings growing up with Jesus, and they probably didn't like him because he never got his phone taken away or never got grounded. <laughs> but uh, that's the house he grew up in. And it's interesting, at this point in the Gospels, None of his, his brothers or sisters are followers. In fact, they think he's lost his mind. In fact, they're often going like, well, you, you gotta stop. You bring the family name down. But what's interesting is after one key event, they all turn. What is it? The resurrection. Jesus comes back to life. They're like, okay, maybe our brother was God after all. <laughs> and James becomes, again, the head of the church in Jerusalem. Judas, Jude writes a, a New Testament letter. Right, they become followers. But at this point, they want to speak to him probably because they're like, you got to stop. Right? And so they say, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, hail, Mary, full of grace. That's not what he says. Now, Jesus loves his mom and he loves his brothers and he respects his mom at all times. But look what he responds and says. He replied to the man, who's my brother? Who's my mother's? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, and there's, remember, in his disciples, there's men and women in that group. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And, and there's a, a, the truth that Jesus is driving here is this. It's not that family doesn't matter. Family absolutely matters. But the most important relationship that each one of us has is with God. Right, that, that, that's the idea. The vertical relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit, that is the priority. And that is what makes you family with God. When we get to heaven, all right, when you get to heaven, if you are married, you will recognize your spouse. If you have children, you will recognize them, but you won't, they, won't be your, your, they won't be living in your house with you and your, uh, be, make sure you're back by 12. You know, they won't be married in heaven. There's no giving of marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. We're all the bride of Christ. 
And so the, the marriage relationship is supposed to picture that. And the most important relationship we have is our relationship with God. And so it, the interesting is when that relationship, that vertical relationship is right, these will a lot of times fall into place. If you wanna be the best spouse you can be, the greatest thing you can do is walk closely with God, pray, read scripture, ask God to convict you, repent of sin, follow his lead. That, that's the best thing you can do as, as, a, as a kid. The best thing you can do if your relationship with your parents is strained is not to just obey them, although that is good. It's to walk with God because if you're walking with God, then you're gonna want to obey them. You're gonna want to honor them. The best thing you can do for your relationship with your employees or with your employer is to walk with God because if you're really truly walking with God, you're not gonna really care what everyone thinks. You're gonna do your best job because you wanna bring him glory. You're gonna work with all your hands all for his glory. For your neighbors, you're gonna, you're gonna not care about the fact that their dog does this or does that because you're gonna try to be reaching them because you're praying for a door and opportunity and you're gonna, you're gonna release the things that they do wrong because you're walking with God. So our vertical relationship with God is the most important relationship we have. And if you want these to go well, then focus on this one. And that's, that's, that's his point. That is the most important relationship. And that's where he's going. It's not that he doesn't love his mom, but those who do his will. And again, think about the, the privilege. He said, if you follow me, you're my brother. You're my sister. You're my mother. There's intimacy there. There's closeness there, right? We're We're family. The God of the universe is telling you you're his family. That's, that's pretty strong. That's a pretty great statement, right? And his brothers and his sisters would become his spiritual family as well as his physical. So there's a lot there, a lot of challenging statements. Maybe you've heard those before, maybe not. But here, here's, boil it down to this. Jesus cares about our daily lives. He does, right? And he wants you to walk and rest in his forgiveness, some of you are struggling with that. He wants that. There is no unpardonable sin except for to reject Christ. He wants us to be careful with our words because it reveals what's in our heart, so guard your heart. He wants us to respond to the simple truth that he's revealed to us, so respond. He doesn't want you to be enslaved. He doesn't want you to be burdened with all these things. So he says, follow me. Don't stay neutral. Follow me. And he wants there to be intimacy and closeness, he wants to call you brother, he wants to call you sister, so pursue that relationship. Yeah, it may be challenging some of the things he says, but when it gets down to it, it's not. He's just drawing us to ourselves because that's the kind of God that he is for us. Let me pray, and we'll respond by singing. Father, thank you for truth and forgiveness, and even when there's things that are difficult to understand that we can uh, grasp the big idea, the big picture of that, the fact that you draw men and women to yourself, that you want us to be your children, your family, that you've accomplished that in Christ uh, and, and we didn't deserve it, but you did it anyway. And so just help us to be faithful. I pray for our words. It's a big one in our world with such access to our thoughts, our minds being out there. I just pray that we would guard them, uh, that we would, would be careful with what we say because it reveals what's in our heart. I pray that we would find rest and forgiveness in you for those struggling this morning with guilt and shame, that they would come to you as burdened and heavy laden and you give rest. That's the promise you've made and we continue to come back to that. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior, amen. You guys can stand.